This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. fences um i mean they could use some work but they're doing their job yeah <laughs> keeping stuff in and or out that's what fences do huh mm-hmm. but they're not you know bumming it's you out fun- they're good See, okay so here's what here's what i don't understand right uh-huh. is the phrase mending fences is supposed to be like getting along but if you were fixing your fences you would be trying to keep somebody out you'd be yeah. trying to separate yourself from somebody yeah, I have a, f- I have a memory. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is, my is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I have a memory in middle school of reading the poem about good fences making good neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that's an ironic poem. I could be wrong because my primary... They're all ironic to me. <laughs> my primary memory of the poem being taught in class is the teacher just saying the line at us kind of tautologically <laughs> like uh-huh. as if it was explaining the poem to us mm-hmm. just some good fences make good neighbors and then one of us might inquire what that might mean and he just said it back at us i mean i that one i feel like is pretty self-explanatory i think it means if you have a good sense of personal boundaries then you'll get along with your neighbors <laughs> I don't know that that's what that poem's about. I think it is. I think that's what that means, though. And it's mm. poetry, so, and my anybody's interpretation is right, so my interpretation is right. Okay. And so there we go. I think that's what the phrase, anyway. Thanks, poems. Thanks, poems. Let's talk about books, sort of. Every again. week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before. Tells the other person about it. This week, Craig read the book. Craig, what book did you read? <laughs> The, I read the play Fences by August Wilson, mm-hmm. and the way you said that, it was like you were reading like copy, mm-hmm. but you weren't. I mean, I've just said it 900 billion times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I've, once you've done that, you get you start to get it down. So here's the trick I played on you, Andrew. It's not a book. It's a play. It's bound like a book, though. I read a printed edition. I didn't go watch the play. Mm-hmm. I did read the words. Um, I've seen this play. I've never read it prior to reading it for this show. Um, and I really enjoyed it when I saw it. So uh, I thought it might make a good episode of this here podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you have seen or read any August Wilson, Andrew, or what, knowledge, what knowledge of Fences by August Wilson are you bringing in to the recording booth today. I mean, it's exclusively stuff that I've researched today That's <laughs> because fine. I wasn't familiar with him or his work. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about August Wilson. He was born Frederick August, August Kittle Jr. in 1945, uh, died in 2005. He is a black American Tony Award winning playwright. That's right. Anthony himself gives this guy and his plays a seal of approval. 
Uh, he was inducted into the American Theater Hall of Fame posthumously in 2006, and he is known best for the Pittsburgh cycle, which also is referred to now as the August Wilson Century Cycle and the American Century Cycle. Um, it is referred to that way because it's a set of 10 plays, nine set in the Hill District in Pittsburgh where he grew up, and then one in Chicago. Um, that They chronicle the Black American experience a decade at a time, starting in 1900 and ending in 2000. Um, they are not, so I, I've got all the plays. Um, it's Jitney, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Fences, Joe Turner's Come and Gone, The Piano Lesson, Two Trains Running, Seven Guitars, King Headley II, Gem of the Ocean, and Radio Golf. Uh, that is the publication order. And then the chronological order jumps around a lot. And yeah. Fences is in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, but the first one, Jitney, is set in the 70s. Um, the, like the penultimate one is the one that's actually set in the 1900s. Like the, yeah, I could, I could be mistaken. I believe Jitney was one of the first plays that he had written and produced. Yes. Maybe in Minnesota. Um, Um, so it's, he had, uh, co-founded this, uh, black theater in Pittsburgh, the black horizon theater. Okay. He put on a very early rendition of Jitney there. Okay. Uh, but okay. though that that play was not so that that was in uh like the seventies? Like the late sixties, early seventies, okay. I think. And then Jitney wasn't actually like released as a as its own thing until nineteen eighty two. So Oh, um, that's right. And then they like they rev- he revised it to like bring it back into the fold of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, because because it was written before he like started in on the cycle, and then I think Ma Rainey might be the only one that's not set in Pittsburgh. I think that's right. It's either Ma Rainey or Joe Turner. Mm-hmm. One of them is set in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh, it's Ma Rainey. Okay. Um, live correction, Andrew. The what? Tony Awards are named after Antoinette Perry. Um, it was a joke about how it's just one person giving out awards yeah, based on the plays that they like. And so it doesn't really matter whether I got the facts of it right. Oh, I see. I see. Facts, eh? I'm just like, I'm just out here triggering all the theater nerds. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Wilson, Wilson is like a, is a, is a Titan in the canon. Um, and is like, you know, one of the preeminent American playwrights, let alone um, a preeminent uh, black playwright. Um, and yeah, what this book, what book, this Fences won the Pulitzer, Piano Lesson won the Pulitzer. And as you said, he's had multiple uh, Tony Awards, uh, the Drama Desk Awards. Um, what am I thinking about? Hey, I'm Tony. These are my awards. <laughs> Come on over to my drama desk. Hey, it's a yogurt lid on a piece of ribbon. <laughs> um, and they named a theater after him on Broadway. The Virginia Theater was renamed after his death. Uh, there have been a few things there that have that have played in that theater, such as Jersey Boys. Ooh. Uh Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. I don't I didn't know they made a home for the holidays musical. Mm-hmm. Uh the Mean Girls musical. Mm-hmm. Then uh Antoinette Wando's 
play uh, Passover, then Slave Play, which is developed in part, or I think had some folks from Philly in it. Uh, and then now Funny Girl is there. And I don't know if that production of Funny Girl is supposed to be good. Um, it's supposed to be funny? I don't know if it is. That's <laughs> the thing. Um, uh, so he uh, he was born to a white father and a black mother. Um, his father was mostly absent from his childhood. He changed okay. his name to his mother's last name, which was Wilson in 1965 and then he wrote under that from there uh so his childhood is like defined by his you know a strong maternal figure in his mm, mother mm-hmm. um he and his five five siblings had you know rough childhoods partly because they were biracial in neighborhoods that were you know uh so the hill <laughs> hill district is is black jewish and italian american i know they moved to another neighborhood that was like predominantly white and had a really hard time um but yeah being being biracial and just not really feeling like they belonged or were accepted in any of their communities was uh was tough for him yeah. and i know that like both that experience and um his you know his mother like influence his plays and characters in his plays pretty heavily. Um, what else? So I found the, like there's a short list of theaters that have put on all the plays. Oh yeah. Um, the Goodman did that, right? Yeah. So this is not comprehensive, but yeah, Chicago's Goodman theater, Boston's Huntington theater company, uh, the Pittsburgh public theater and the Denver center theater company. Uh, I've all put on the entire cycle. I'm sure there are some others, but that is what I could source from both Wikipedia and a uh, barnesandnoble.com <laughs> article. <laughs> sure. Um, and he was approached in the 1990s about making Fences into a movie. So you may know that Fences was made into a movie in 2016, uh, directed by, I believe, and starring Denzel Washington. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, that movie remained unmade until 2016, partially because he insisted on a black director and, you know, go see what we said about all black theater companies. Yeah. If you want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, Denzel Washington did that. He produced a movie version of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in 2020. And he is he has said in interviews, uh, Denzel has, that he wants to adapt the rest of Wilson's work as he, as he, yeah, I think there, I think there's a piano lesson in the works that's supposed to maybe have Samuel in it. Mm -hmm. Um, that's Samuel L. Jackson. So yes. Sorry. Formally. My bad. (laughs) Friend of the friend of the show, Sam, Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and if we're, if we're speaking about all black theater companies, I do want to just, if folks are coming through Philly ever check out, uh, theater in the X. Um, they're great. They're a great company that does a lot of work in West Philly, though I think they do work around town. I think they just did a Richard the Third that was supposed to or one of the Richards, one of the Shakespeare's. I think it's Richard the Third. Um, um and then the only, I mean, the only other note I had about the Pittsburgh cycle, and then we can get into talking about this play uh, specifically, is that you know they, they are all part of this. You know, he was definitely intentionally doing a big thing with them but they're definitely also not all about the same people or you know there are characters who will appear um in multiple plays across you know multiple generations yeah uh but each play is not like specifically following like one family's experience or one you know character or a set of characters experiences like there are definitely threads connecting them but they're not meant to be digested sort of all in order no, it it they are just written on their own 
in yeah, they're in dialogue with each other in the same way that we're all in dialogue with history. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong? No, I guess not. That's the most pretentious thing I think either of us has ever said, though. Is yeah, but like sometimes <laughs> I, I don't say it with pretension. I kind of you could hear it in my voice. I kind of hated saying it. I could tell you hated saying it, and that I think that's why it reads as pretentious. Oh, sh- oh, sure. If I said it, we're all in dialogue with history, Andrew. Yeah, if you've been if you've been really earnest about it, it would have been more. Yeah, like that that tone of voice has given me like Elmo talking about history. <laughs> What's that, girl? We're all in dialogue with history? Woof, woof. <laughs> now you're talking to Lassie about yeah, history. She's, I like it. she's I like with it. it. She's a big fan. Mm-hmm. Um, what I saw that this so play... Like, Scoob, we're all in dialogue with history. Can you give me that? Can you give me Shaggy? Zoik, Scoob, we're all in dialogue <laughs> with history. <laughs> I, I don't think that's Shaggy, Debra, but I like it. I we're like all it. in dialogue with history. We're all in dialogue with history. That could be a thing that he would yell at his old parents. He, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Okay. What else do we have to say about <laughs> the play Fences, which premiered in 1985 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in, uh, where is that? Something Connecticut? I've been there. It's on a beach. It's a cool space. Mm-hmm. Um, the, when I was there, the radiators were really loud. Mm-hmm. Um but I still got to sleep. Uh, <laughs> anything else about this play that we should talk about before we talk about it? No, I, I wanted to uh, yeah leave the leave the plot stuff to you because you've seen it and read it. Yeah, so you're more equipped to you're more qualified, I think, to talk about it. I know it's about a garbage man. <laughs> it is, and mm-hmm. honestly, I would never have said that. <laughs> But it is about a garbage man mm-hmm. and whether or not he is a garbage man. Uh, let's take a break sure. and we'll come back. Andrew. Yes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Good. Sometimes the fences are too hard to build. Mm-hmm. They're too big. They're too long. They're keeping stuff out that you want in or in that mm-hmm. you want out. They've got unkillable ivy all over them. Yeah. They like poke you with their jags. It stinks. And working on these fences, it's easy to get burnt out, lose motivation, and feel trapped within this fence that you're not sure you wanted in the first place. <laughs> you, you know, you're just building a fence, build a fence, keeping your head down, trying to get by. And then you put you put your head up and you look around and you realize that you've trapped yourself inside the fence (laughs) and you can't get out a metaphor for burnout and it's no fun and Mm -hmm. work isn't the only cause sometimes it's because the roles we play like in a play like fences get it uh the roles we play in life can lead us to feel burned out better help online therapy wants you to prioritize yourself uh there are people in my life who really rely on and benefit from therapy i think it's something that folks should try if they're interested um, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. 
It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. This podcast, again, is sponsored by BetterHelp, and overdue listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash overdue. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash overdue. Swing for the fences. Mega Man, we're all in dialogue with history. <laughs> Oh man, can you do a good Kermit? Dr. Wiley. My Kermit is just my Ray Romano. It's too close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all in dialogue with his. What was that voice? We're all in dialogue with history. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the play fences, Andrew. You said it's about a garbage man. You're right. Well, look at that. 100 it's, points. It's to about me. a man named Troy Maxson. Uh, and he is alive here in the 1950s, living in uh, Pittsburgh. And he, he the way you said that makes me feel like the play just like opens, and he walks on stage in his garbage man uniform, and he says, "What what a time! To, I'm so <laughs> it's so interesting to be alive here in the 1950s." <laughs> No. Do you think all the all the Pittsburgh cycle plays start like that so we know what time it's supposed to be? No, we get there is a really like interesting uh intro by Wilson um that talks about how like a like an introduction outside of the play written by yes, the like author. A, okay. Like an author's note. Yes. Um a that forward. is about the like European immigrant that came to this region of the of the United States and how the city like kind of welcomed them and internalized them and while it was certainly grinding them down it was certainly building them back up um, and they had the American dream and then the same was not offered to the defend the descendants of uh, enslaved people from Africa who were coming up from the south and they too were like fleeing desperate circumstances, uh, but were you know often forced to like you know do stuff to get by that was extra legal or mm-hmm. you know other things like that. Um, and, and it for, closes... re- for reference, to you at home that means outside of the law and yeah. not like especially <laughs> legal. Yeah, sorry. Um, it closes by 1957. The hard-won victories of the European immigrants had solidified the industrial might of America. War had been confronted and won with new energies that used loyalty and patriotism as its fuel. Life was rich. F- Full and flourishing, the Milwaukee Braves won the World Series in the hot winds of change that would make the 60s a turbulent, racing, dangerous, and provocative decade had not yet begun to blow full. So, like, there is this interesting thing about this play, and I suppose about the rest of the cycle, where, you know, like a lot of historical fiction, Wilson is writing it with some hindsight he's writing it he's right he's specifically diving into this decade to talk about people who might be you know living through that historical moment sure and there are i suppose some like there's some ironies some dramatic ironies i guess to like the characters not knowing what's coming in the 60s in particular i think um and you're you do well to think about a lot of these characters 
one character in particular, Gabe, uh, Troy's brother, who was injured in World War II, and to like think about this generation of folks coming out of that conflict um, and what they have and haven't been afforded. But you're right, Andrew, the, spur- the stage direction uh, of Act 1, Scene 1 does start with, it is 1957, just in oh, case okay. you... <laughs> But it's it's different if a character comes on stage and is like, "Well, he got another day in the 1950s." No, that that is not Pulitzer worthy, in my opinion. Um, mm. No, we are greeted with Troy and Bono, um, two good friends, coming on stage talking about work stuff. Um, Troy is described, and this is something that I wouldn't have known from obviously watching the play. Uh, Wilson is not. Eugene O'Neill-esque with three page long character descriptions, mm-hmm. but he does tend to give each character like a solid paragraph uh, that is like not, it, it makes sure you're not working from a blank slate if you're an actor or director, but I do think it gives you like room to work if you're, you know, as a performer. Okay. Um, so here's Troy. Troy is 53 years old. A large man with thick, heavy hands. It is this largeness that he strives to fill out and make an accommodation with. Together with his blackness, his largeness informs his sensibilities and the choices he has made in his life. Okay. Yeah, like, Wilson obviously is somebody with a lot of, like, when it comes to how his work is put on and performed and, like, produced and whatever, obviously has a lot of thoughts about how that should be done. So I I guess I'm not surprised to hear that he is pretty specific about like the physicality of his characters in a way that would probably be unavoidable when you were actually casting them. Here's the cool thing though. Mm -hmm. I saw this play in 2014 at people's light and theater company here in the greater Philadelphia area. Wonderful production. Uh, the smallest person on stage was playing Troy, and he ruled. <laughs> he huh. uh, he kind of had like a Napoleon thing happening, where he was he knew he was smaller than his per like size wise uh, than other people in the room, and he had developed a much bigger personality to compensate. Sure, um, and it was kind of magnetic, and it was also occasionally scary. Um, and it certainly the performer, I think his name was Michael Janay, like filled the space. Um, and so it it's one of those things in retrospect that like to read the script, like oh yeah, what if this guy was like hulking? That would mm-hmm. be a different energy to a lot of the interactions than than the version I saw, which also yeah. seemed to work. Um, mm-hmm. But to your point, though, he uh, Wilson is not very specific about, at least in this script, I can't speak for his other scripts, um, about the like physical space uh, for someone who will take the time to give you some emotional insight into these characters with a little bit of physical description. He does not give very much in terms of like, hey, the whole play just like takes place in the yard in front of this house. Okay. And that's really all he tells you mm-hmm. um you get some hints from the dialogue that this house you know is might be in need of offense and or at least some characters want one uh the roof is going to need repaired so you get some clues there but other than that it's not really specific 
um, aside from what you absolutely need to make the action of the play work. Okay. Um, but yeah, so we got this garbage man. His name is Troy. Uh, the opening like work story. It's payday, Andrew. And Great I don't, day. I don't know about you, but Troy likes to celebrate payday, having a you know tying one off with mm-hmm. his buddy. Mm-hmm. He does give most of his pay like literally puts it in the hand of his wife rose and then <laughs> she gives him back ten dollars mm-hmm. uh they've got an arrangement there I feel like um, direct deposit is sort of messed with the the physical yes. aspect of payday though like i, I definitely For a lot of people yeah yeah i definitely had like remember what it was like to get that big that big check and go somewhere and say here give me I'm going to give you this piece of paper. You give me other pieces of paper that I can go to GameStop (laughs) with and buy PlayStation 1 games. I remember when I first started working in Philly, getting a regular paycheck. It was not direct deposit because it was still like weekly stipends. And the people, I always took it to the bank and Mm -hmm. deposited it at the counter. Yeah. And they would be like, you can use the ATM. And I'm like, I don't trust it. (laughs) <laughs> and this way, you give me a receipt. And I yeah, watched no, I a need, person I do it. Do you need to come in here and do my whole deposit slip and remember my account number to make it real? <laughs> Otherwise, I don't trust it. Yes, yes. Um, and so we get this kind of set up with Troy and Bono, who's a good guy. He goes back with Troy they we find out later in the play that they were in prison together. They met in prison. Um, and they work together as garbage men. Um, and I think in this scene, we also meet uh, one of Troy's sons, Lyons, who is from a previous relationship prior to Troy and Rose being together. Uh, and Lyons, <laughs> I want to find the description of him because I really mm-hmm. like it. Um mm-hmm. Troy's son by previous marriage. He sports a neatly trimmed goatee, sport coat, white shirt, tieless and buttoned at the collar. Though he fancies himself a musician, he is more caught up in the rituals and quote-unquote idea of being a musician than in the actual practice of the music. He has come to borrow money from Troy, and while he knows he will be successful, he is uncertain as to what extent his lifestyle will be held up to scrutiny and ridicule. (laughs) (laughs) That is pretty good. It's pretty good. And like the the arc for Lions in this play, contrasting it with Troy, who we will spend most of the episode talking about, is like Lions and his half-brother Corey each have something in their life that they think they want to pursue that doesn't have a a direct analog to like hard work that provides food for your family, which is like how Troy talks about himself. Um, and like Lyons is telling this story to himself and everyone around him that he wants to be a musician and maybe he does and but he spends a lot of time in clubs and he doesn't seem to have steady work or make steady money from being a musician. I mean that doesn't. Yeah. Preclude being a musician. No. <laughs> but like the lines we get from Lions about it are about like wanting something to help to like give him a reason to get up in the morning. Okay. Um Corey, who is like a like an older teenager, he is really he's pretty good at football. And the thing is is that Troy is really good at baseball, but he's in his fifties. 
mm-hmm. and he was he did play in the Negro Leagues, uh, but then he did go to prison, uh, and then he played baseball in prison, and I think he when he came out he was too old. Like Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier, uh, maybe a few years after he got out of prison, depending on when Corey was born. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, he was not going to have a baseball career. And there's like some tension between the way he tells it being the truth of like racial discrimination and also the fact that of his own actions, Troy did spend 15 years in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so he doesn't want Corey to play football. Corey wants Corey's going to get a college education if he's allowed to talk to this football recruiter. Mm-hmm. That's a big plot in the play. Sure. Of, yeah. of Troy, whether or not Troy wants that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the other thing that happens in the first part of the play and then we can maybe zoom out a little bit is that Bono keeps saying to Troy hey I know you gotta stop like talking to that one lady the way you talk to her you gotta talk to her bad not his wife it's, it's a different lady in oh, town he flir- he's flirting with her okay yeah and and Troy's being very cagey about it, and Bono keeps like later in the play, Bono has like a pretty long scene where he just keeps saying to Troy like, "Rose is a good woman," and Troy's like, "What do you mean? She's why are you saying she's a good? Stop telling me she's a good woman. I know she's a good woman. She's my wife." <laughs> and Bono's like, "Listen, we've been friends a long time. She's a good woman," uh, and that doesn't go great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the like. The setup, this play doesn't have a MacGuffin. It doesn't, so I, my first Wilson that I'd read was Piano Lesson, which centers around a family uh, trying to decide what to do with this family heirloom piano that has like carvings of like family members going back to like before the Civil War and stuff and whether or not they're going to sell it for some money or like hold on to it to preserve their heritage. Um, there are ghosts in that play. It gets pretty wacky. Uh, this play doesn't have a central MacGuffin. It, this, you know, I know you've read Salesman, Death of a Salesman, Andrew, and this mm-hmm. has some salesman vibes where it's like there's a guy who's at, who is the like beating heart of this family. Who's at a crossroads. Well, yeah, and he's like... He's really he's both like likable and infuriating and affable and hypocritical and he's got probably a little too much mach- this is different from Willie Loman he's got like too much kind of machismo to him and and yet like he is the 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 person around which the world of this play orbits. Well, I think if, if you're doing a salesman comparison, probably that machismo here is used in service of creating a similar like this guy is sort of aware that his the prime of his life is behind him and it's making him feel away. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. He the it's what's interesting in the like new things happening to him the way you said like prime of his life that's interesting because the the work plot which none of this none of this like really happens a lot on stage but like um there's this tension around uh troy having gone to his supervisors and kind of complaining 
that there are no black garbage truck drivers, Mm -hmm. that there are only white ones. And he kind of talks his way into getting a driver job, even though he doesn't have a driver's license. I mean, that's that's that that's remediable. <laughs> he does. He said, I think when Bono's like, you don't have a do they know you don't have a license? He's like, I'll have three by Monday. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and he does wind up like driving and he later kind of laments that it alienates him from the other people on his team. Like he's just kind of working by himself. It's up in the cab. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you do you need a commercial license to drive a <laughs> I mean, a in, city in 1957, I don't know, and I don't know what if the they rules had commercial are. Commercial license, because it could be that it's, you know any old yabo with a personal <laughs> driver's license would also need to get a new license to drive a big garbage truck. Un- but I don't know. I don't know enough about the regulations at play. Yeah, yeah. Unclear. Also, like what you know is this a neighborhood garbage business is it run by the city the the play never drops pittsburgh by name but it does reference a few neighborhoods and obviously if you're now if you're going to read or see this play you know it's in pittsburgh um Let me just see if the, you're gonna look trash up trash collect i'm just familiar i'm familiar with the philadelphia system where we have pretty good trash and recycling pickup but pretty bad just like street cleaning the streets clean yeah situation yeah okay it does look like they yeah city of pittsburgh offers collection services to promote environmentally it looks like they've got i don't know how it would have been in the 50s have you ever been to pittsburgh andrew i've been to pittsburgh one on like in a i am visiting pittsburgh since one time okay otherwise it is a road sign between here and and ohio's house yeah. yes I spent a month there. A be- month? Yeah, between uh, in junior... The, in the other Pennsylvania P city? Yeah, it was weird. The second one? Uh, in between junior and senior year of college, I did a show there where we lived and we lived in a, a, a house that was on the market that they rented to us for like a month. That was yeah. strange. Yeah, I mean, um, I sold a house. You, you recently, you just, yeah. Otherwise, it's just sitting there. Um, and I had a great time in Pittsburgh. I would love to go back. It's the best. It, it is for my money the best baseball park in America. Wow, it is even the, it, better than Citizens Bank Park. Yeah, it has the best. With it's v- big jumbotrons and it's plentiful uh, pretzel stands. It has the best view of any ballpark I've been to. Um, yeah, yeah. I guess all you can see from Citizens Bank Park is sort of the concrete sprawl of South South Philly. Yeah, and like <laughs> sure. then at night it's better because you get a you get a lit up skyline. But yeah, during the day the it's like mm-hmm. I hope the sky's nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with Pittsburgh, it's like right on the river. It's really gorgeous. Anyway, um, so what? Oh, and yeah, Troy. As we talked about the baseball thing, there's some fun back and forth with him and Corey at one point about like. Uh, whether or not Troy could hit major league pitching. <laughs> and of course he thinks he can. And Corey's like, no, nah, you shut up. Um, but you're really, I think I got onto this tangent because this play doesn't have a, an explicit, like there's not a character being like, Oh, by next week we got to sell this house. Or it's just like, this family is going through stuff and you are the dramatic arc is really impressive because you're waiting for shoes to drop is most of the play 
Like you're waiting for something to happen with the fact that he is clearly seeing another woman. You're waiting for a bubbling over with the Corey football plot. Mm-hmm. You're wondering if Lyons is really ever going to kind of pay off as a character. And ultimately, he doesn't need to. I think if he had a bigger plot, the play would feel a little crowded. But he's kind of there to give you this vibe of what if life was about something else, but then also he's when he shows up in the very last scene of the play, he's doing time for oh, like, geez. you know, like skimming money off of people. Yeah, um, I think for, for a character in that situation, narratively, what you really need to do is just like suggest to the audience what the most likely future course of their situation yes. is going to be. Like you don't you don't need to close the loop on their arc. You just need to kind of like point at the arc and it's people really can put artful. it together from there. Yeah. yeah, because like he shows up. And he asks Troy for money. And so we instantly learn a lot about Troy because of how he treats Lyons, who is this son that is outside of his current marriage of 18 years, that he resents how Lyons asks him for money and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't really believe that Lyons is going to make anything of himself. And so by the time we watch interactions with Troy and Corey, we're like, oh, I wish... Oh, okay. So he's going to like like his son Corey and be like cool to him. And he's mm-hmm. not at all. <laughs> and, kinda, and you get really frustrated by it because this other character who like exists in the periphery has taught you so much and then you're like, "Oh, why Oh no, okay. Something is broken about you that you can't even like be a better father to the son that is in your life all the time." Mm-hmm. Um and there's a lot of there's a whole lot of baggage between Troy and his father, which is why he even left the South in the first place. Um, that monologue is pretty good. But the... What do I want to say next? I don't know. Do you have any questions based on you... any characters? Oh, I haven't talked about Gabe yet, but go ahead. I mean, one thing I read, and, and you mentioned this earlier about another Wilson play. I read that his plays sometimes have sort of a supernatural sure. element to them does oh, this have any hint of that at all or is it mostly like this down-to-earth thing about a garbage man and the various sons that he has <laughs> he also he loves his wife sure and he's not disingenuous I mean, we all we all love our wives craig like, i know and he's not disingenuous about it he's just a broken guy so that when he later admits to his uh affair and the ramifications thereof, which he really woofed it when he does sure. that. Yeah, um, no, it sounds like it. You really feel for Rose, and and I think he he. I'm saying all this to get out of my system before I go back to your question. Um, I know <laughs> yeah, like where the where the ghosts at. <laughs> I know really he <laughs> he focuses uh, the piano lesson on. I think her name is Bernice. Um, following this one because he was like, oh, I should kind of tip the scale over towards like a strong female character in in my play. Um, Cause Rose is good. I like Rose, but she's underwritten relative to the other characters. Um, mm-hmm. The supernatural element that comes into this play is twofold. One, uh, Troy has this relationship with capital D death that he talks about a lot. 
he is he is very much personified death. Uh, there's one story that he tells early in the play when he was in the hospital. I think Rose said he had pneumonia. I think that's actually true. I don't think that they were covering up for something. Mm-hmm. But he spent like three days like literally fighting death in the hospital room. Like that is Troy's version of what happened to him. Mm-hmm. And so there are a couple scenes in the play where after a, a a major conflict or a scene has mostly ended and Troy is left on stage like with the emotion of the moment, um, he is kind of confronting death just out in the world and, and yelling at him. The, the most poignant one is when he is like, I'm going to finish this fence, this fence because Rose has asked him to build a fence on their property. He's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to build this fence and I'm going to keep you death out of here. I'm going to like live here forever. You come for me. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be ready for you. Um, and so there is this like specter hanging over him the whole time. Um, and that, that's, and that's why it's called fences too. One of the reasons. Yeah. I think and does he ever, does he ever say fences plural? Like, does he ever say Craig, you ever say the name? I did. Uh, I folded the page. Where he says the name of the play in the play? It's in scene two, I think. He do, is it where the first line of the play where he comes on stage and says, I sure do like building fences in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first mention, I could be wrong unless they talk about it in scene one and I missed it. Mm-hmm. The first moment I missed it was act one, scene two. Rose is on stage, lights come up, she's singing to herself. Jesus, be a fence all around me every day. Jesus, I want you to protect me as I travel on my way. Jesus, be a fence all around me every day. Um, So she's the one who has the title card. But then there is a scene where there are scenes where Troy enlists both Bono and Corey in building the fence with him. Mm -hmm. And he talks about building a fence a lot. Okay. Um, But the supernatural element in this play, other than death, which does come for Troy by the end of the play, uh, is sort of in Gabe. So Gabe is Troy's brother. Gabe was served in World War One. He had a traumatic head injury of some kind and is just like, he's kind of living on a slightly different plane. Um, he believes himself to be the Archangel Gabriel. Okay. Living in I mean, he has the same name. He does. That's how you're halfway there. And he wears a trumpet around his neck, like on a string, and carries around with him. And every anytime he's like telling you about what's going on, like he goes around, he like sells fruits and vegetables to get by and whatever. He does get like a pension from the government. Um just like the just like the angel gear. <laughs> uh-huh. Um and I mean, God's got socialism up there. You ever think about that? You ever think Just about everybody that? giving like streets paved with gold? Like, come on. Why isn't why doesn't everybody work anymore, Craig? Nobody wants to work anymore up in heaven. <laughs> Could you imagine being the one person in heaven being like, why doesn't anybody want to work? With the libertarian up in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Gabe, you know, everybody loves Gabe, right? Um he recently moved out of uh, Troy's home. He had been living in Troy's home. He moved out and moved in with Miss Pearl, a neighbor of theirs. And Troy's kind of hurt by it. He's also annoyed that like he can't 
sort of charge his brother rent like he was like helping pay his you know pay on the house and stuff mm-hmm. um I think he's saving up to fix the roof, like taking some of Gabe's money for that. Uh, Rose is not bothered by it. Rose feels like Gabe wants to be independent. He, you know, he should be allowed to do that. And Miss Pearl treats him okay, despite, Mm -hmm. you know, what his challenges are. And we learn later in the play that when Gabe was like discharged from whatever medical care he had, Troy was in a really bad way financially and you know providing for his family and whatnot Mm -hmm. so he he got he found a way to get gabe's like three thousand dollar check from the government used it to buy a house and then like had gabe live with him and it's like an ethically gray situation sure that troy can tell himself he was providing for his brother and his family other people can say you took advantage of your brother. Neither are false. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and then Troy may or may not do Gabe dirty again later in the play uh, after Gabe is like harassed by some street kids and then gets arrested for like chasing them down. Um, and they, they're going to recommit him. Um, and Troy has a hand in that. Uh, the supernatural element of Gabe that really shows up, though, is at the end of the play, uh, Troy has passed away, uh, and we get this epilogue. Um, I want to roll back the timeline of the play in a second to, to explain how we get here, mm-hmm. but there's this like really powerful closing, and I remember this from the like light and sound design of this production. I'm trying to... I thought I had in my notes somewhere... Um, the names of the oh yeah it was Kevin Dio was the sound designer um, on this production of People's Light and it was just like every once in a while the sound design would just get like really like loud and oppressive whenever it was like channeling this death stuff mm-hmm. and then at the end of the play Gabe is like okay well the gates of heaven are gonna open to let Troy in and he sure. goes to blow on his trumpet and he doesn't have a mouthpiece. I don't know if you ever played a trumpet, but you do need a mouthpiece. Play a trombone. And oh, yeah, yeah, you need a mouth. You can't just like put your lips around the little pipe. You need a, yeah, you need a mouthpiece. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he tries to blow anyway and it, and it doesn't work. Trombone's and, just a, trombone's better than trumpet because it's bigger. I liked trump. I never wanted to learn the positions of trombone. It seemed very stressful. I mean, it was rad though because you can just slide, slide it. <laughs> Uh, this is what uh, Gabe closes the play with. This is all stage directions. Um, there's a weight of impossible description that falls away and leaves him bare and exposed to a frightful realization. It is a trauma that a sane and normal mind would be unable to, to withstand. He begins to dance, a slow, strange dance, eerie and life-giving, a dance of atavistic signature and ritual. Lyons attempts to embrace him. Gabriel pushes Lyons away. He begins to howl and was an attempt at song or perhaps a song turning back into itself in an attempt at speech. He finishes his dance and the gates of heaven stand open as wide as God's closet. That's the way that go, he says. Blackout. As wide as God's closet. I just love... God probably has a rad closet. He probably does. It's probably huge. Just just, all his big white robes all lined up. I just love the stage direction. The gates of heaven stand open 
and that you know as wide as God's closet because like the way it's written has this wonderful ambiguity for whatever production you want to do of like is that just what Gabe is perceiving is that what feeling do you want the audience to have with that I don't know you got to do something like mm-hmm. it is a it you are grabbing the director and the design team by the collar and you August Wilson are yelling you have to do something here well and you can you can it it invites a a wide range of possibilities based on your budgetary yeah for sure concerns like you can you can construct a big old set piece if you want or you can just turn the lights up really high. yeah for sure <laughs> yeah and and as long as it's emotionally earned because like that that whole last scene of the play is characters wrestling with whether or not they want to forgive troy for who he was um and whether or not that was earned and whether or not that's going to get him into heaven is kind of the implication. And the play doesn't really come down on that mm-hmm. other than like what could we ask the question really loudly in a way that like sends you out of the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I wanted to make sure I, I talked about uh, before we run out of time is just the the arc between him and Corey. Between Troy and Corey has like two different, uh, two different like physical confrontations. Mm-hmm. Uh, one I think comes after Troy admits to Rose that he has fathered a child with another woman. Uh-huh. That another woman is pregnant. Mm-hmm. That's how he tells Rose that he was having an affair. He says, I'm going to be somebody's daddy. <laughs> like that's a, Ooh, that, that you were, you were trying to introduce degrees of separation in there, buddy. Yeah, and bud. I'm not, I am not sure it's working. Uh-uh. <laughs> I don't know. And he goes on to like make the argument. And what's, what's kind of fascinating to me about this play is that there's some stuff in it that you could in the, in the worst hands could be very tropey and melodramatic. In the best hands, it feels kind of primal in the sense, or like like in the sense that it is core to humanity. Like it mm-hmm. is like a, a like an it is elemental. Maybe is the word I was looking for. Um, where like by telling her by admitting what he did, and Rose is like, well, what am I supposed to do with this information? You awful person. And he's like, yeah this woman makes me like feel like a different version of myself. And he's not saying it as an excuse. He's just being honest and it's maddening and it's awful. And she's like, I don't get to do that. And it's just really heartbreaking scene that ultimately Corey has like Corey shows up and they have like a physical confrontation that Troy wins because Corey backs down uh, and then there's a third one after Troy has gone around Corey's back and told Corey's coach that he's not allowed to play football, where they almost they almost hit each other with a baseball bat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And like bringing, bringing the baseball thing back into it. Yeah. Because there's like a whole like Troy is like, you know, telling Corey that he has two strikes and if he gets a third one, he's out kind of thing. And he means it. Uh, oh, that's like how baseball works. It is. It's funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not funny. It's very sad. Uh, and Corey is kind of pushed to the breaking point. 
they're going to fight. Corey almost hits him. He relents and kind of loses, which is really like I honestly couldn't remember how that scene goes. And it's one of those things where like they both lose because you watch Troy like, you know, kind of dominate his son in that moment and you watch Corey back down, but he was almost willing to do it. And so neither of them come out looking good and you're just like, wow, this is a broken relationship and it makes me sad. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so leaving that, Corey's arc in the last scene of the play is he shows up, his dad having died, he's in the Marines now and he doesn't, he doesn't intend to actually go to the service, which Rose tries to talk him out of. And then there's a page where he sings a song that his dad used to sing, but he's singing it with the seven-year-old girl that Rose wound, wound up adopting uh-huh. um, that Troy fathered. Sure. And that scene rules because there's nothing in the script to tell you how those characters feel about what is happening, but it is clear that they are feeling a lot. Mm-hmm. Again, options. Thank you, Mr. Wilson, for the options. <laughs> um, and then just then, let the just a good playwright knows how to make the audience do the work for them. Well, you know. <laughs> and I, I'm sure if you asked Mr. And, Wilson, and I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory no, way at all. I yeah. mean like. <laughs> no, totally. You know, e- e- economy, know where to use economy of, of dialogue and of storytelling and of, of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a couple, you know, I will, I am not the person uh, to do right by the text of this play. It is, it is a gorgeously written play. Um, yeah. That, that was another thing I, I read about him in addition to uh, he puts ghosts in everything is that he. <laughs> Has a like early in his in his writing process in his writing career, he learned not to tone down like dialect and and tone yeah. down the way that people are actually speaking around yep. him. Yep. Yeah. It so it makes for really like realistic but musical dialogue. Um, the stories that get told in this play are have a really great arc to them. Um, and I'll just shout out this one interaction because like I read the line on the page and had to stop reading um, where Troy and, and Corey are fighting. And the, the main thing that Troy seems to really hate and get really wounded by both Corey and Rose say a version of it is that like Troy has taken from people more than Troy thinks he has because Troy sees himself as someone who gave and gave and gave. Mm hmm. And he's not being honest with himself or the world about what he has taken. Um, Not to say that they're mutually exclusive, but he's just like, he's hurt people by taking things or being selfish and and other people call him out on it. Um, And Corey says, you ever talk, you ever, you talking about what you did for me? What'd you ever give me? And Troy yells back at him, them feet and bones, that pumping heart. I give you more than anybody else is ever going to give you. And I was like, that pumping heart. I put the <laughs> book down. It was just like, and I know that it was the, where the scene was going to go. It's stuff like that. And the Rose scene is great. Yeah. It's, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's good. <laughs> And and to your point about the supernatural stuff, I think the production design team for the one that I saw like really kind of leaned into that in those 
those scenes that end with Troy kind of alone on stage wrestling with the concept of death helped to literalize it for the audience a little bit. And then there's the payoff at the end of the play with Gabe where it's like, oh, the the force, even though it wasn't like material on stage, feels like it was a real presence. And then it kind of gets to pay off with Gabe. Um, I think there could have been more baseball in the play, let's say. <laughs> I mean, that's classic Craig. It's you say not- that every you say that we we need to just introduce a segment to the podcast. Like, what was the baseball content like? Was there enough of it? Could there have been more of it? Where could they put it in? I just I think the only I think the only book that has slaked your thirst for baseball has been the literal- Twilight. Well, I mean, I did read a baseball nonfiction book for the you show. You read a but- nonfiction baseball book, but I, but I think the scale and the ridiculousness yeah. of Vampire Mountain baseball <laughs> gave you, like, it, it only took up a small piece of the book, but it was so big that it, that it, it, it made you, it satisfies you for the first time. You're right. And I also think that I appreciated that we got both vampire baseball and like minor league Pete or whatever his name was the the stepdad who was like a minor league pitcher like this we got the full spectrum of baseball ability in that book mm-hmm. this book this play is is largely about a man who used to play baseball uh and used to be a bunch of things and the the stuff, the extra legal things that I alluded to earlier are at the heart of, you know, why he became who he became. Um, and, and Wilson, I think treats this character with a lot of sympathy, but does not apologize for him either. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or mm, apologize I mean, on his behalf in a way that can, feels you, you can be, you can be sympathetic and still be a big poop head. Or you can just be wrong and and infuriating that that you uh, would keep being that particular type of wrong rather than that's what I said. I guess you know, I think I, I think poophead encompasses <laughs> <laughs> sure that complicated range of things that you just said. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what he almost called the play. Poop poophead, trash guy. I guess. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, all right, people should go see uh, this play. If it's out, you could probably go watch that Denzel movie, um, or just read it. You could read it too. It's good. That's what I mean. That's what our podcast is kind of premised around: is the ability to just go out and read it. Yeah, put right. it on in the theater of the mind. Whoa, we're all in dialogue with history. Oh my god, we gotta get. <laughs> out of here andrew thanks for letting me tell you about this play thanks for telling me about it you really you, listen you knocked it out of the park hey good one mm-hmm. um we're sliding into home here folks uh you can send us uh, an email at overduepod at gmail.com hit us up on twitter and facebook at overduepod yeah thanks if you want to be in dialogue with us in addition to being in dialogue <laughs> with history uh thanks to sea salt mage mooney beantrix alex cassie avril and many more for reaching out. 
uh, in this past week. Thanks to Nick Larandis, who composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Over to podcast.com is our internet website. We have links up there to the books that we have read and the ones that we are going to read. If you click them, you can buy the books uh, from bookshop.org, which gives a cut to your local independent bookseller, gives a cut to us. And gets you a book. It's a great deal all around, I think. Win, win, win. Uh, we have a Patreon project, patreon.com slash pod. If you support us there, you can get bonus episodes early. Uh, depending on the tier you donate at, you can sit in on our uh, every other monthly live streams. Is that yeah. is that one of the possible meanings of bi-monthly? Yes, correct. Okay, great. Uh-huh. It's such a stupid we should it's have a, two words. We really should. It's 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 high time. This is my, I'm launching my candidacy for <laughs> Pennsylvania Senate and this is my platform is we should have two terms for twice a month and once every other month. <laughs> yes. I I do want to shout out we uh there's been some discussion in our patreon discord about the recent advent of dracula daily if you're out there you've subscribed to dracula daily you're enjoying the tumblr content uh come on in join the patreon join the discord maybe and chat about bats and paprika with us yeah we might we may need to actually make a channel dracula daily (laughs) channel at this point um Anything else? I've, oh, uh, next week I am reading. We're going to dust off the old British accents. I'm reading The Duke and I, which is the first book in the Bridgerton series by Julia Quinn. You may know it as a Netflix series uh, named Bridgerton. Yeah. Where the first season was a smash hit success and the second season is something that people feel a lot of different things about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you have feelings about that, email us as well. We'd love to hear about them ahead of the show. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to us for another week. And until we are in dialogue with you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.